farming does not always go the way you want it to. You know, the weather, we can't control the weather. We just can't. We can't control the wet conditions and that, you know, 60% of horses seem to have thrush right now. It's just that's what's happening this year. But what we can control is sort of looking at our lifestyle as a gift in the modern world. Like we have hardships and trials, but we also have the sunrise every day and the sunset every night because a lot of what we do really is dictated by our daylight. Welcome to Choosing to Farm, a podcast for first and returning generation livestock farmers and ranchers to share their stories, find connection, and provide insight into the life of farmers who didn't take the traditional path. I'm your host, Jen Colby. This is Jen. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, first, please save the date for the Gathering of Good Grazers. It's coming to Western Massachusetts in January, the 25th, 26th, and 27th of, 24, of 2024. Uh, this event is a partnership between the Northeast Grazing and Livestock Conference and the Northeast Pasture Consortium Annual Meeting. So, Join the mailing list of the consortium right in the show notes, nice and easy. Get notified when registration opens. We'll have some of the latest research to share. There will be farmer panels, keynote speakers, practical presentations, lots of discussion, and plenty of time to connect with friends from around the region that a lot of us haven't seen in three or four years. So sign up for updates and you'll get more information delivered right in your inbox, including registration, scholarship information too, as soon as those are available. So thanks. Um, we hope to see you there. On today's episode... Erin Meeting and her husband, Charles, purchased their farm in New Hampshire in 2008. And they raised their four children there while making a range of improvements to the land and building several businesses. And until June 2023, Erin worked full time. Here's Erin to tell us more about her experience. I am Erin Meeting, and I live in Springfield, New Hampshire on Divided Sky Farm. And I am an herbalist. I'm also a Reiki master, but I grow many of the, a lot of food too. I've been canning for tomatoes for what seems like eternity. I feel like it's Groundhog Day right now on the farm um, <laughs> because every day it's another batch of something with tomatoes. But I'm so grateful, especially considering the bad weather that we've had this summer that our heirloom tomatoes have held up. So no complaints here. And the herbs have done fantastic this season. We've just finished our farmer's markets. Um, for the 2023 summer season. So I'm taking a deep breath right now and just focusing on, you know, getting gardens sort of shut down for the season and planting some fall crops for us to harvest, hopefully until the snow gets too deep. But I, I bought this land in 2008. We have 27 acres in Springfield, New Hampshire, which is a tiny little town of under 1500 people. We do not have a gas station in our town. 
We do not have a convenience store. We do not have a grocery store. We do not have anything. We do have one mechanic, but he's also my hay guy. So it's really good to know. And my husband actually went to kindergarten all the way through school with him. So so we have a relatively small farm in the scheme of things. We're on a dead end road. It's quite lovely. And bought this in 2008. It had a tiny 900 square foot contractor's ranch on it with a basement. And that was it. There was no barn. There was the vineyard that I don't know if it's behind me, but there is a small vineyard here with grapes and the original owners of this land. It peeled off from the original sheep farm that's at the end of the road, which was built in the the 1800s. And they sold off this little 27 acre lot to a husband and wife from Greece. And they brought some grapes and they grafted them with Concords and nuts. And they just had some really small gardens, but this tiny little contractor's house deeded down to a nephew who lived outside Boston. And him and his wife really wanted nothing to do with being in rural Springfield, New Hampshire. And so they listed the house. And um, I had recently moved back from a period of living overseas in Iceland and knew that I wanted to farm, knew that I wanted to raise my kids on a farm. I had been practicing herbalism since before my oldest child was born. He is now 20 years old. And so our kids are grown and flown. But basically, you know, started off here with this really tiny house and a couple of gardens and had to learn about gardening in the Northeast, which can be challenging, as we all know (laughs) this year, especially, and have really just learned everything. I did not grow up in a farming family. I grew up in a small town um, in the Midwest, actually, so different climate. But, you know, my parents had a tiny little garden with a couple of tomatoes, maybe if we were lucky, maybe some corn from like, you know, my grandparents' house. But there were, you know, there's no one in my family that has ever farmed. So I'm I'm pretty sure most of my siblings think I'm crazy. They think I've turned into a very crunchy individual, which I am. So it's all good. (laughs) And now we are home. Basically, we have, you know, our house is around 3,500 square feet. I have a full apothecary in the house where I dry all the herbs and make them into plant medicine. So I'm turning them into tinctures, into teas. We have a skincare line, all of those things. In addition to that, we you know, seem to keep accumulating animals over the years. We have horses, we have goats, we have chickens, a couple of farm dogs um, who come in and sleep on nice wool rugs in the bedroom every night, and um, a host of cats as well. So that's sort of where we're at. We've just been building and building. We built our barn that's behind me um, in 2013. So it's about 10 years old now. Um, and uh, we just keep expanding every year. It's a little bit more. So, and we choose to grow things a little unconventionally. Our property sits at about 1,100 um, feet of elevation, and the top of the property is around 1,400 feet of elevation. So we're quite a steep sort of we have slope. So all of our pastures are hillside. Um, none of them are flat. There is not a whole lot of flat land here where we're at in this region of New Hampshire. So we have lots of streams on the property. And as opposed to just having gardens that are laid out or like open fields with plants, we choose to plant things where they like to be. So, you know, I may have, for example, like our bone set and our marshmallow root, some of those things that like a little bit wetter feet, I plant those over by streams in shadier areas, like our black cohosh is out in the front of the house on a corner where it's quite shaded under some lovely trees. We harvest all of our own wood on the property. We're a standing hardwood farm. So we heat with wood. We kind of, we have 
quite an extensive pantry. I do lots of canning. I love making everything from scratch, breads, you name it. So that's that's kind of a little bit about us. My husband, Charlie, obviously does crazy things like yesterday trimming tree limbs on a 30-foot ladder, which, you know, I caught him doing. But <laughs> generally, we try to keep things safe here. <laughs> well, if you are in a, in a town that does not have a grocery store and does not have a gas station, I imagine you don't have a hospital either. <laughs> We do not. The nearest, so Dartmouth would be our nearest hospital. So that's up in Lebanon and that's about like 20 miles from our farm. So we, we are within a reasonable distance of, you know, services, but you know, for me, we produce a lot of our own stuff here. And then what I can't produce, I choose to source from other local farmers to support them. So you'll find me getting my meat from local farmers. We, we do eat meat on our farm. I know lots of people are vegetarian, but we are not. And cheeses, things like that. We'll hopefully breed our goats this winter and have some goat's milk next year. We just got added goats to the farm last year. So they're just year, year old dolings right now. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, you're, yeah, branching into animals is a whole different, <laughs> it's a whole different yeah. world. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So how did, how did someone who grew up in the Midwest and did not have any connection to farming, what was that trajectory like? So, you know, my parents will tell you, you know, that I was the little girl from the time I was five, at least that's as far back as I can remember being outside and collecting leaves and flowers and making potions. So I just, I probably wasn't the normal, you know, small town suburban kid growing up. That was a little, little different. And, you know, I think when I finally graduated high school and went off to college, you know, I was very interested. My interest in just working with plants and keeping things natural was really important to me. And then when I got pregnant with my son in 1999, I really fell into it. So, you know, as opposed to having a traditional doctor at the time, I had a midwife and I really became very interested in the study of plants. And then we ended up moving overseas for a period of time for four years until 2006. And so while living in Iceland, I didn't really have the opportunity to grow very much more than what could fit on a balcony. But when we knew we were coming back to the United States to to settle here permanently with the kids in 2006, I knew right away what I wanted. I wanted a small town. I didn't want to deal with traffic because I hadn't dealt with it in Iceland for four years. And I knew that I wanted to grow as much of my own food as possible. And so, you know, it's just been an expansion of that sort of dream ever since. And I think I was really inspired um, by The Backyard Homestead, which is an older homesteading book. But I remember, you know, sitting there dreaming about how I could have this quarter acre lot, you know, and I could grow enough to sustain my whole family. I'm not sure that actually is is really true in the Northeast. I think if I lived in Arkansas, that might work. But, you know, certainly on a quarter acre, you can sustain quite a bit of your family. So, you know, depending on your your climate. So I think I just always had an interest in it and started learning some some basic skills, you know, learning how to make bread, learning how to soak my own beans and, you know, go from the plant to what you're doing. And, you know, there are obviously people that have been doing this for centuries since the existence of time. But I think in our modern society, we have fallen out of a lot of that because it is so convenient to go to the grocery store and grab what we need. But I think there is a resurgence in general of people, no matter how much space you have, 
you know, even if you are living in an apartment, maybe you have a few herbs on your balcony because those herbs have so many micronutrients in them that we just can't get in grocery store food. So, you know, I, I try, I think now and this point in my life as an herbalist to bring plants to people, however it works for them. So that's my goal. Oh, I love it. I totally love it. Um, I was at a conference in the last um, few days and there was a, um, one of the speakers was Dan Kittredge of, yeah, Bionutrient Food Association. And, and I'm all, I mean, I've heard these numbers before, but I'm just astounded to sort of hear that, that, you know, 20 to 40% of the, of the nutrient density of our food has been lost in, in, and they've documented this over and over with some very, very common foods, you know, carrots. I think it was like some, something like yeah. 30% of, of nutrients have been lost. The, the vitamins and minerals from carrots have been lost and you go to the grocery store and you're like, that carrot's not even orange. It's like this pale orangey. Yeah. Yeah. And they've it's- washed it in some sort of bleach solution that is very unhealthy for us. And so it's, right. you know, there's a question of that, but I think here specifically, well, I mean, in the entire country, but, you know, if you do live in an area where there are lots of wild plants and you work with someone who can help you learn to forage for some of those wild foods, we can gain back, even if you have to go to the grocery store for most of your stuff, let's say you're doing that for 90% of your groceries, and maybe you're sourcing 10% from a local farmer's market, you know, there are still wild foods out there that you can forage. And there are some great books. I brought this one out with me today. It's the Northeast Medicinal Plants, which is a fantastic book. It's, you know, really has great pictorial descriptions Mm -hmm. of those plants. So and those books exist for all regions of the country. So even if you're just somebody who has, you know, a little half acre property, there may be things growing right under your feet that are extremely nutritious for you. And then the other one I really recommend for people is The Wild Wisdom of Weeds, which is also a fantastic book. And this book actually has recipes in it on how you would prepare and eat those wild weeds. So, you know, maybe maybe don't mow down those dandelions come spring first of all let's support the native bee population right but, you know <laughs> there's that but also you know those dandelions are very nutritious and delicious absolutely oh, man oh this is so good and i i i also just spent time traveling this week down to this conference and back and with a person who's been studying who is who is a, a pasture teacher you know does a lot of teaching and technical assistance around pasture and grazing and has also been studying herbs since she was a little little kid and we we just got into this great conversation about like the ecology of pastures and the ecology you know the ecology of our of our environment around us and how how much healthier it is when it's incredibly biodiverse and that is everything that's in the soil level and the plant level and the and 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 all of the creatures, all of the stages and of creature, there's so much more in those plants than we have any idea about. And so to have exactly. a monoculture in our food or in our, 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 our animals, food in pasture, like all of it, just monoculture, not so good. <laughs> well, and also let's just, let's just think about, you know, here in the Northeast, if, if a lot of your listeners are listening in, you know, how many of your listeners are going, that damn Japanese knotweed. Right. You know, like it's everywhere. I can't get rid of it. It's like insanity, right? But here in the Northeast, what is our primary 
illness that um, a lot of farmers are suffering from, tick-borne illnesses. And what does Japanese knotweed do? It's extremely effective at assisting the body in healing or processing through a Lyme diagnosis. And, you know, I'm not here to say use pharmaceuticals, don't use pharmaceuticals. I think there's a place for both. My opinion is that Western medicine has come to the world because we're going to need it at some point. Almost every single one of us will need Western medicine. However, there are so many plants that are literally right in front of us that are trying to heal the planet as well. So if we just go back to that spiritual level of there is this need, what is growing on my property that might be there for a reason? You know, a few years ago, we had no Jap- we had no Japanese knotweed here. Now we have some. A few years ago, we had non-existent jewelweed. Now I have tons of jewelweed. And mm-hmm. as you research the plant, you find out what are its properties? How can I use this? What What is it? Why is it growing here? You know, sort of. So I encourage like every single person, again, whether you are living on a really small plot of land or whether you are living on a farm like I am to get outside and just take a nature walk. There are apps that you can download to identify plants. They're not 100% accurate, but they may. They're pretty good. They are. Yeah. Yeah. They're actually. Um, So, you know, just ask yourself, wow, I've never seen this here before, but suddenly this is growing here. And I wonder what it is and what it's good for, Mm. you know? So right now we have tons of Jerusalem artichokes blooming here. What a powerful plant, such a powerful plant in healing the body. And, you know, but you need to know, like, am I using the flower? Am I using the leaves? Am I using all of it? Or am I digging up the roots after the plant has sort of bloomed and it's dying back and sending energy back into the earth? And so there, and sometimes you're using all of those things. It just Mm -hmm. depends on the plant. But, you know, cautioning everybody, if you are harvesting, you know, make sure you're not harvesting something that's endangered. Always check with someone that's knowledgeable. Also, you know, use that third rule. I like to use the third rule here on the farm, which is with herbs, we're harvesting a third and we're leaving two thirds of the plant so that the energy can go back in and continue to produce for the next year, especially in the Northeast where we have tend to have harsh winters. So, you know, some of our plants don't like to overwinter here. And if we can give them a really strong, you know, go into the fall season and, you know, get them nice and strong, then hopefully they'll come back for us next year, even bigger. I would love for you, for, for that rule, third rule or rule of thirds or yeah. Like, yeah. I call it, I call it the rule of thirds. <laughs> I love, I, I love that because, because there is, there is this whole concept that is gets bandied about around a ton i i mostly have, have spent my career working with with livestock agriculture so a lot of grazing folks yeah um not always grazing folks but a lot of grazing folks and there is this sort of simple and it's 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 described as a rule sometimes but it's not really a rule take half and leave half yeah. And the take half, leave half is it gets people into so much trouble. And in the beginning of the season, when the when the grass is tall and it's growing so quickly, taking half is not necessarily the worst thing in the world. But when we're down to, you know, grasses being four inches high, take half, leave half is a recipe for disaster. Exactly. And good grazers and good grazing management is much more, especially earlier in the season. Later in the season, you can actually take a little bit more because you're not looking to have things regrow as as much as things are starting to, you know, this time of year, I'm not too worried about just taking a third because we're not going to get another, you know, big growth spurt at this point. Um, But, but taking it, 
taking no more than a third or taking just the tops in the beginning of the season are a way to help that plant be stronger. And I love what you're, I love your application of that in non-pasture plants. It's just a great reminder that if we take, if we take just a portion and not a large portion, then we leave things so much stronger in the end. Yeah. Yeah. And in addition to that, like my my process here is that, so for example, I make a, quite a bit of hydrosols for use in products and I have the biomass chemistry set to, to produce my own hydrosols. And so, you know, a few weeks ago, we did a demonstration at a, a large local conservation farm for the weekend for their, their farm days. And we did lavender one day and Tulsi another day. And I really enjoy explaining to people, they're like, well, what do you do with that when, you, when you're done and you've made your bottle of hydrosol? Well, there's water that condenses in the bottom of the set that sort of has some of the plant material, some of the plant, you know, properties in it. And, you know, lavender tends to turn like this murky brown color. It sort of looks like dirt water. And then there's the the plant matter that you've, you know, steamed the hydrosol and the oils off of. And I try to tell people, well, that water in there, that's compost tea. That's going to go back on the gardens. And that, that lavender that we've used, that we've harvested and then used to make the hydrosol, that's going to go back in the compost too. And that's the soil that is going to, you know, help because there's still, even though we've used a lot of the plant for what we're using it for, there's still a lot of stuff in there that can compost back in. And then, you know, a big part of our work with the animals here is we use our horse manure, chicken manure to fertilize our gardens and you know I have people that come here and they're like oh my gosh your 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 plants are so gorgeous what are you feeding them and I'm like we're just using what is being provided back to us from our animals we go in with the tractor into the corner of the paddock and take the top layer off and then we will compost that in piles and it is not unusual for us to have multiple piles about the farm and for in the you know Memorial Day weekend for me to look at one of those piles that's still in the composting process and throw a bunch of pumpkin seeds in it because why not you know (laughs) and you have the most beautiful pumpkins come fall and you know so and then those pumpkins will sit out and maybe be decoration or maybe we'll eat some of them and then when they start to go we'll feed them to the our chickens who provide us with eggs and so there's this beautiful cycle that comes from really loving the land and just giving it energy. And I tell people, if you have a plant and you're going to harvest it, every time you go out and you're going to take a leaf of basil because you want to have that on your pasta tonight or you're on your salad, just say, give thanks to that plant. Because I swear, my master herbalist teacher taught me this, who I trained under for several years. She said, if you talk to your plants and if you thank them, they will thank you back. I'm always so grateful. I've been, like I said, pressure canning tomatoes. And while I'm getting a little burned out on canning right now, because we're at the end of the canning season, and I'm like, okay, I'm done. I've done like 56 pints of tomato sauce in like the last week. And my tomatoes are loaded still. And I'm like, they're they're so heavy this year that they are actually pulling themselves out of the ground. Like it's crazy. They're like six feet tall. So, you know, we, we are fighting the blight from all the rain, but there's still these heirlooms are still producing, which is just so impressive to me. I look at those jars and they come out of that pressure canner and they're sealed. And every time I'm like placing them down on the basement pantry in these neat little rows and they're labeled by years. And I'm just feeling like this immense gratitude because I put that seed into a, 
into a little seed pod and then I put that tomato in the ground and you've tended it all season and hopefully the marigolds have kept the hornworms away and all the pests that we deal with. And then you get this harvest and it comes in and it comes in hot and fast. And you're like, whoa, I have to, they have to be preserved. But come January, when the ground is covered in snow and nothing is growing here, except for maybe some wintergreen or pine that we can go harvest or various things like that, mushrooms that we harvest in wintertime, I'll be so grateful putting that on my family's plate. So it's just, I have just immense gratitude for it. So immense gratitude for the chicken eggs and I'm really excited to milk next year because I've just, you know, all the farmers that milk, they just say it's like such a great gratitude. And I feel that every day, like when I get up in the morning and I've got the schedule, you know, I've got to feed the goats and feed the horses and everybody gets turned out in the morning because our animals do come into our barn at night. Yeah. Um, I have such gratitude when I'm mucking stalls and that sounds crazy, but you know, it's one of those things that it's almost like Zen gardening when you're cleaning a stall because you, you like, I have to sweep it back just right. And you know, the shavings, the, the smell of the shavings just smells so lovely. And it's like, okay, now I know that if the weather turns sour today and we get thunderstorms like half of the summer and I have to bring animals in early that everything is good. Like we're ready for the next cycle. And there is a rhythm to life that comes with farming it causes us, yeah. we're very busy on, I mean, every farmer is, our to-do lists are never ending. We cannot get everything done. We probably never will. But I feel like those structured rhythms of feeding the animals and caring for them and caring for the plants and harvesting things at different times throughout the season, it's a beautiful thing. And it fills your soul like every day. So. Yeah. yeah so how do you balance that? How do you balance Having a never-ending to-do list and not, I won't make the presumption that you don't feel the pressure. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how do you, how do you manage that, that never-ending to, to-do list? Because we all have it. We really do. So yeah. You know, what brings you peace in that if, if anything does? <laughs> sure. So, I mean, I do feel like, you know, chores are a form of meditation for farmers, just the, the simple act of doing chores every day. And so I find that, you know, just that quiet in the morning or like in the winter time, you know, in at least where I am, it gets dark around 3.30 in the winter, 3.30 p.m. And, you know, having to bring in and the sun is setting over the ridge that is across from our farm and the sun sets over that ridge in the winter and the snow is glittering and it's cold and crisp in the air. And I think those just slowing down for those moments, it's like, okay, the to-do list is going to be there always. Like, and I've always got a to-do list going in my head, but I try really hard to balance it out with finding moments of peace, you know, and not letting myself get overwhelmed because I think for farmers, just accepting that you're not going to get it all done is healthy medicine for you. Like, and being okay with that, because I was looking at my kitchen this morning thinking, dear Lord, it is a disaster in there because there are <laughs> like canning jars everywhere and the pressure cooker and the strainers. And, you know, it's like, and there's different varying stages of everything going on in the kitchen right now. And I love to have a perfectly clean kitchen, but I look at that and then I'm looking and thinking, oh, you know, I really need to weed the fall garden today and get this done. But I try to sit there and go, okay, it's not like you didn't get anything done. Look at all the canning that's sitting on your counter that needs to now be taken down to the pantry. And so that's what you've done the last few days. That's where your productivity is. And so I think it's about prioritizing 
your list, you know, you can have that seasonal. I like to make seasonal to-do lists. My husband and I sit down and make like a quarterly to-do list of like projects that we hope to get done. And I think our goal is to try to tackle at least 50% of those. And then we'll go through that list and prioritize the list. You know, obviously if you're in the height of growing season, you've got to keep up with the weeds. And so maybe your house isn't going to be as clean as your garden is, (laughs) but you just accept that. And then you know that winter is coming and there'll be more time for those indoor activities come winter, you know, like organizing your seed packets, because that's what we do. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to take a quick break to thank our underwriter for this episode, the Northeast Pasture Consortium. The Northeast Pasture Consortium is an alliance of farmers, researchers, service providers, and policymakers across the 12 Northeast states focused on issues of importance to pasture-based livestock farms. The consortium connects folks from Maine to West Virginia around grazing topics and helps set USDA and university research priorities across the region. Visit grazingguide.net to learn more about our work and join the mailing list to hear about upcoming events and farmer scholarships. Well, and you and you are balancing um, animal chores and plant chores, and those also, you know, animal chores don't really ever go away. Yeah, just sort of an, an an interesting combination to have part of things be in one sort of seasonal feel, and other things be in a different seasonal feel. Yeah, I I would say that for sure. You know, the summer, the spring, summer, and early fall season is extremely busy for me. And I'm doing farmer's markets as well. So, you know, it's like, and herbs, you know, like the tomatoes are all coming in like within a month time span. Herbs are tending to come in from the spring all the way straight through until the very late fall and even into like November if we're digging up roots. And so it's a long growing season when you're working with herbs. And uh, some of the herbs have to be harvested daily. Like I use calendula a lot in healing salves and in our skincare line. And the more you pick it, the more it grows. And so you have to keep up with the daily picking. And that means daily drying and, you know, creating the right conditions for drying that plant. You know, you, so it's, it can be taxing, I think, you know, to combine. Sometimes the summer days feel like they never end, but, you know. As long as it would stop raining, I'm good with it. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did New Hampshire get the same rain? I mean, we did. we're only an hour away from each other. I realized yes. that when you said where you where you live, and I was like, oh, I'm about forty minutes away yes. from Dar- Dartmouth. So, so we're not that far away. But like, did you actually yes. get the same amount of rain? We <laughs> we got a ton of rain. It was ridiculous. Okay. Our upper driveway to the upper fields for the horses, you know, it washed out five or six times this summer. Thank goodness for the York rake, because otherwise we would have had to pay a fortune to get the driveway repaired over and over. We have bluestone on our driveway, like many people do in New England. Yeah. So that has been really challenging and just keeping, you know, it, it, I think really challenging for farmers this season obviously has been hay. We were fortunate enough to to come into some hay in the last month, but it was, you know, pretty dicey and our fields were so wet that, you know, I really wasn't putting the horses out onto them. So they were on, you know, their paddock for a good portion of the summer. They're finally out in fields now, which is really nice. But, you know, we did not get that early season grazing because of all the rain, which increased costs for farmers because we were feeding out more hay. So it's it's been challenging this year with all the rain and the plants as well have really, you know, taken a hit. This year we got zero zucchini. 
our the roots just got drowned at the beginning of the season and we tried to reseed but July was like a repeat of just more rain and so the roots just never got established the way that they normally do I mean like last year I was driving around the neighborhood in you know to the end of the road in our ATV like dropping zucchini on people's porches you know this year it's like <laughs> don't leave your car open if you're near me because you may get zucchini bombed but this year no zucchini interestingly oh. enough though some of our other crops fared really well so it's sort of about balancing and you know I think a lot of northeast farmers including myself are getting to the mentality of like putting up your food for two years instead of just for the year and there's been a lot of discussion about that in some of the groups that I participate in. And, you know, it's like, okay, I'm taking this tomato harvest and going, holy cow, we have so much. But, you know, my shelves are stocked with marinara sauce and carrot tomato soup and salsa. And so, you know, I have about a two-year stash for us because next year, who knows what's going to happen, the way the global warming is going and climate change. I think that farming is becoming challenging or climate just in you know, since 2006, when I moved here, I feel like the climate has drastically shifted. You know, our frosts are so much later, you know, the yeah. heat just seems more intense. And that really has affected the way that we farm. So yeah, do you find yourself switching any things that you're doing into more perennial agriculture so that you know, perennial plants so that there's a little bit less dependence on on annual crops as well? Yeah, I mean, we do not have a greenhouse right now. So in the way of growing food, that's, you know, the greenhouse is on the list of things that we would love to get someday, but we right. budget for certain things every year, little by little. So that's that's maybe in the future for us. And I would love to be able to grow food year round. We have really good sun exposure here, fortunately. So I think that we could, if we had a greenhouse, grow some winter crops. I have worked really hard with extending some of the raised beds with some simple row tunnels that expand like an accordion. And so those will go out at the first frost and we'll be harvesting kale and carrots and, you know, salad greens, uh, maybe some radishes, other types of crops well into usually December. And then I find we can get our beds going, you know, sooner in the spring. And some herbs that years ago would not overwinter have suddenly started overwintering, oh, interesting. which I've found really interesting. So like our clary sage, it overwintered last year and I had not had luck with that. That It's it's a beautiful, large plant that I used in some of the botanical products, but it had not overwintered in the past and it did. And so it's interesting to see how the warmer winters may affect you know, what, what becomes something that comes back every year for us versus us having to reseed and replant. And this year I'm going to experiment with Tulsi does not, Tulsi's Tolly basil. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's a sacred basil. It's grown in India. It has a lot of great nerve properties for just healing anxiety and nervousness, things like that. It's a great plant and I use it a lot in a lot of different ways. I also use it in skincare too. It's got some really good benefits but I've never been able to overwinter it. Normally by this point in the year, it's already sort of died back and dead and done. Yeah. It's still looking really good. So I think this year I'm going to try digging up two of the plants, potting them and bringing them in the house for the winter and see if I then can get them going because they really grew quite prolific this year. I'm not convinced it can overwinter in this zone, but I would like to experiment with maybe bringing it in and seeing if it goes through. I have had success doing that with rosemary and the rose geraniums. 
that are mm-hmm. outside in the summer, but I bring them in for the winter and they're very fragrant. So I use that in some of the skincare mm-hmm. for hydrocells too. So. Huh. Yeah. I, I, are we changing zones? I mean, I, 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 I think we're on the cusp, the pre- at least where I am. Yeah. In some ways. Yeah. I, I have, I've been wondering that as well. So I, we've been doing a switch over not, it's not a switch. Cause I've, I, I was a very failed vegetable producer. So every time the chicks arrived, like in the spring, I would start all my plant. I would start everything on the windowsill, have all of these <laughs> seed packets and I just pour over the Fedco seeds catalog and just love it. Yeah. And then as soon as the chicks arrived in the mail, I ignored all the plants. Like I didn't harden them <laughs> off well. I didn't weed. I was really bad. Finally, I just like joined a CSA because it's like somebody yeah. else is doing this way better than me. But when we bought our new farm a few years ago, there's there's some old agriculture, like old old apples here. 50 year established blueberries, you know, some, some very well-established, very old perennial stuff. And I just want to experiment and expand on that. And it is kind of astounding to me. Like there are, there are fruit trees that will grow in Vermont now that just didn't, you know, it's that combination of hardy varieties for a Northern zone. And then also I think that things are more temperate. So, yeah. And I mean, when I yeah. bought this piece of land, we had none of that. We had no fruit trees. You know, there was really nothing. The only thing here was this, you know, grapevine and a chive plant. That was it. <laughs> and some rhubarb and rhubarb, which is plant. still, yeah. yeah. I mean, the chive plant I've moved like six times. It's very prolific. I would love to know, like it makes the hugest chives ever and they're delicious and they produce like three times throughout the summer. So I'm like happy about that and the rhubarb is ridiculous as well but those things were here yeah. outside of that nothing was here that's planted now so the pear trees the apple tree the sour cherry tree the blueberries the raspberries you know all the things that we have now but i find every time we plant something new it really takes 3 years to get going on this farm it's a minimum mm-hmm. of 3 years just to get itself established really well and to start producing and then we're looking at five to seven years before we're really getting a crop. So obviously I'm not buying, you know, the tree that has to be delivered on a truck. I'm buying something that I can put in the farm truck. So, you know, it's not a huge tree, but a lot of the trees I planted in 2009 and 2010, and we are getting, you know, product from them. Now this year we had that late season frost. Our pears Mm -hmm. got completely wiped out the apple as well. Our sour cherry, fortunately it was far enough along that it made it through and we had a bumper crop of sour cherry this year and our blueberries made it through but like our pears we have two pear trees and they normally produce so much for me to make pear butter and this year we have zero pears I think there may be one on the tree so you know those those sorts of those things again put me into the mentality of like are we in this particular area you know pushing through these climate changes that are going to require us that are farming to consider that two-year process where we're, you know, if we get a bumper crop, should we be preserving that food or those herbs, you know, for our herbal medicine cabinet, maybe at home for a two-year sort of plan? So that if next year we're not getting something from a perennial like our apple trees, we just don't get a crop. And we, and our vine for the first time since 2008, our grapes, no grapes this year. Oh, so did they get no they get frosted too? They did. Yeah. I mean, we had that May frost. It was like 17 oh, yeah. degrees. Yeah. Yeah. And I think 
moving everyone into that two year mentality may be something we have to think about as farmers, you know, yeah. putting up that food. And obviously all farmers know we go through hard times. So it's, you know, saving for the rainy day, we hope. And this year it's one of them. So what do you find helps you get through the, these challenges, the hardships, the the years that aren't what you could have predicted? Like, sure. you've been doing so, this a while, so. I have, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and I mean, and I, I was working full-time until June. So mm-hmm. I was farming and working full-time. I am now working at home and doing herbalism exclusively. And I have some other side things that are my professional career. But, you know, I prior to this, some days were really hard because, you know, I'm working a 40-hour job off the farm and still trying to get it all done. Not to say lightly, but it's sort of a joke. It's like, you know, make sure you have good, strong coffee in the morning. <laughs> like, get started with that. I don't know. <laughs> my husband does not drink <laughs> coffee, but I do. And I would not survive without my morning coffee. <laughs> I do actually write in a journal every single morning. And I would encourage like every person in general, but especially farmers, like it is really hard to put ourselves first and to take care of ourselves because we have mouths that need to be fed every morning and they are waiting. And if you have horses and you're four minutes late, your horse knows it. So they are not usually happy. So, you know, just trying to make time. So I do get up fairly early in the morning, like most farmers, but I make sure that I work in at least, you know, 15 minutes to journal. And a lot of the journaling this summer has been about the weather, but I feel like it's a brain dump process. Because we wake up in the morning and our feet hit the floor and we already know that our giant to-do list is waiting for us and all the responsibilities that we have. But I think making just, if you can find five minutes, 10 minutes for yourself, I really feel like that makes things manageable. And then I think it's just coming to an acceptance that, you know, farming does not always go the way you want it to. You know, the weather, we can't control the weather. We just can't. We can't control the wet conditions and that, you know, 60% of horses seem to have thrush right now. It's just, that's what's happening this year. But what we can control is sort of looking at our lifestyle as a gift in the modern world. Like we have hardships and trials, but we also have the sunrise every day and the sunset every night because a lot of what we do really is dictated by our daylight. And we get to be outside. I always tell people, you know, I get to be outside 365 days a year, like every or 366 if it's a leap year. I get to be outside every day, morning, afternoon. And then I close my day every night with a 9 p.m., you know, night check in the barn. And it's that process of tucking the animals in for the final time in the evening, making sure everybody looks good and is healthy for the night. And I think there is a piece in that routine that, you know, we lose sight of when we're running ragged, you know, going to an office. And as farmers now, modern farmers, all of us, most of us have websites and we have social media that we also have to keep up with, which I'm not very good about. I'm trying so hard to work on that this fall to update our website because it has not been updated in like three years. So I need to get it updated, you know, but I, I think, you know, just again, finding that time for yourself, you know, whether that's whatever grounds you whether that's a walk with the farm dog, whether that's, you know, getting off the farm. Sometimes, you know, we need to have breaks too. So I encourage all farmers, find your local farming network. Somebody has somebody who comes and takes care of their animals when they have to go away or if they have a family emergency. So, you know, my husband and I do try to get away a few times a year. We've been really fortunate. 
we've been really fortunate in this area to have the same um, young lady taking care of our farm for like the last eight years. So when, when we leave, honestly, I come home and my barn is cleaner than I left it. And so I feel really lucky. We obviously, you know, I want everyone to know if you are a farmer, it is hard to get away because a vacationing is expensive. And, but in addition to that, we have to pay someone to stay at our farm. If a farmer is leaving their farm, they're making a big investment in themselves to have that downtime that they might need. And what my husband and I often do, it's like a, you know, two nights away and we head over to Maine or something, you know, because that's within driving distance. So if there was an emergency, we can get back. And we've taken some longer trips. I find those to be very hard. I'm very attached to the land and very attached to my animals. And so that's tough for me. But I think like 24 hours sometimes is all you need to just take a deep breath and accept what's going on and have a 24 hour mental break from it. And then you come back so refreshed and ready to go again. Yeah. So, and, and I think that those breaks are equally important in the winter, even maybe when your gardens aren't going because the winters can be really hard here. And sometimes your fingers are falling off when you're doing chores. You're trying to hold onto the pitchfork and I can't feel my fingers anymore. We've had those minus 27 mornings here. And it's like the water buckets are frozen again and you're cursing and it's just like nothing's working out. And just to be able to say, I need a break. I need, I need to go away for 24 hours. And sometimes that means that my husband goes away and I go away at different times because mm-hmm. maybe we can't get coverage here. So I would just encourage every person who's starting to homestead, starting to farm on whatever scale they are to know that you're going to need a break, but also to tell yourself that it's okay to have a break. You don't yeah. have to do it all. I'm so glad that you said this. I mean, I, I get concerned when folks come in with the, the whole perception of, of we love this life and we'll never need a break from it. And, and I, I haven't found that to be true as much as I love this life (laughs) that yes. And you're, and I, I totally agree. Sometimes it's just a single overnight or 24 hours where you're away. My husband and I have set a goal of three long weekends a year, like something quarterly, like just a quarterly and that which I will say we're not on track for this year. So we really <laughs> need to get on that. We did one long weekend and, and one week someplace yeah. be- because historically we have not been good at doing a week together someplace. Uh, that's not a work trip. Yeah. Yeah. So you said you just left your off farm job to be on farm full time. You have to tell me what you did unless you want to, but like what, sure. no, I what will. That's aspects great. of your off farm life do you bring into how you do things at the farm. Sure. So my background for, you know, 20 plus years has been in trust and estate law and in employment litigation, but primarily the last, you know, 10 years has been all trust and estate law and then some asset alignment and financial planning. So um, I bring all of that to the table. So definitely when we decided to launch our herbal component and have a botanical company, you know, my background really allowed me to navigate getting the proper uh, licenses here in New Hampshire, you know, creating the LLC. I was able to do all of that myself. And those are big hurdles for farmers. So I would just say if that's something that is a hurdle for you, 
to network with other local farmers as to how they got organized and how they got things done. We were really fortunate because that's my background. So I was able to sort of create all of that stuff. And then the financial component, you know, getting an EIN from the IRS that's separate for your farm, setting up a separate bank account, you know, tracking your expenses, and then making the decisions, you know, because I did a lot of fiduciary tax returns. And my my background is in accounting. My dad was a CPA growing up. So, you know, I've been doing tax returns since I was like 10. He was like, here's Mr. Jones's box. You know, can you sort his receipts, Aaron? So, you know, <laughs> and I still do the taxes here for us. But I think, you know, it's it's navigating that, navigating laws in your state. And that can be tricky because it's a shifting sand for a lot of us. Every state is very, very different. So, you know, I bring that and then the financial component, which is, you know, how are we budgeting for the things that we want to do? What did we make at the market? How much of that should be reinvested in expanding like more professional labels or buying a better sign for the farm stand tent? Should we be buying a tent with sides this year? Is that something that's in our budget? Things like that. So that's kind of my background, you know, as, as to what I've done in, in my life. And it sounds like it's been very applicable in certain, certain places. <laughs> yeah. But I'm also, I'm also a Reiki master. I'm, I, I taught, I started teaching yoga in 2002 in Iceland when my kids were really little. That was kind of my, my job at that point. Cause I was not working in corporate when I was overseas. So I taught yoga and Pilates. So I'm really hoping next year we are going to be having goat yoga on this deck when we have kids <laughs> next year. So, you know, I'm I'm always thinking very creatively about what are some ways I'm planning, hopefully, an, a women's herbalist retreat here on the farm for next summer, maybe for late July when most of the things are really in bloom, hoping that some wonderful ladies from the Northeast or maybe even further will come and camp out for a night or two and learn about plants and just to be able to walk the land. My husband's been making all sorts of new trails through the property so that we can take these lovely hikes next year. Um, I think there's there's skills, but a lot of what I do here is also just trial and error, people. Let's face it. Like, you know, it's like, well, you know, Aaron came up with the grand idea that we're gonna do X, you know? It's like, but we've never done that before. And there's 40 different ways on Google. So which one do we pick today? You know? Oh, oh totally. Well, do you feel like that's that a little piece of being successful in farming is following those creative urges? <laughs> Oh yeah. And I found like, I left my corporate job in June. So the middle of June, I left for, for good and, you know, have been on the farm full-time for the summer since then. And I feel like my creativity has returned just as a person, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm being more creative in the way I'm working with the plants, but I'm also being more creative in my food choices, like preparation of meals, um, more creative, getting back into my craft areas, knitting and, and quilting and doing things that I sort of had kind of brushed to the side during the season of life of raising kids and working full time. So I want also, if you're like a young mom or, you know, you're a homesteading mom or a farm mom and you've got littles around, just accept that this might not be your creative time and that's okay. I feel like there are just different seasons of life that we all go through and just accept where you're at and allow yourself to just be like, it's okay, you know, because there, there is time. I mean, now my kids are grown and my husband and I are empty nesting and I do find that I have more time, but I still felt like, I mean, our youngest is going to be 21 in November. She's a senior at St. Lawrence university. 
And I I still found like when she went off to college that I still felt like I didn't have any time because I was working off the farm 40, you know, 40 hours a week and the commute too. But now that I'm back home, my creativity has really shifted, you know? And so there may be a season where you'll be able to work part-time or scale back or, you know, come home building. But what I would say is like, again, I bought this farm in 2008. It took me until 2023 to be able to get it to where I'm hoping I can not have to work off the farm anymore. You know, <laughs> that's only this, 15 this, years. That's not I know. actually in this grand scheme. That is not crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, but, but a lot of the work that I, I do now tends to be like, okay, I'm doing more tax returns and things like that. And that's more of like a winter thing when the farm is a little quieter, but it's taken me all this time to get my life to that point. So what I would say to anyone who's starting out is like, A, if you're buying a piece of land like I did that doesn't really have anything on it, like pick what's most important to you and start with one thing. Like next year, we really, we're going to have goat kids, and but we also want to add bees next year. We have neighbors that have bees, but that's something we've always wanted to do. We source our beeswax locally for our products, but I've always wanted to have bees. And so that, although I'm I get very swollen if I get stung. So really my husband's going to be tending the bees and not me, but it's okay. I've convinced him. So he he can get stung (laughs) like 13 times and he's fine. So, but I would say like, you know, we have slowly added things. I started out first with a, a few small gardens and, you know, six chickens and we've had chickens since 2009. And, you know, we just got 10 new chicks this year. So start with what you feel like is manageable for you. And the other thing I would say is like, you know, If you're going to add livestock and you can probably vouch for this, like make sure you have the proper buildings or shelters first. Like it's really tempting when you're at the the feed store to bring the chicks home. But if you don't have a house for them, like you've got big problems. So, you know. (laughs) I feel like every year we add a little more. Every year we add a little more, you know, with what we're comfortable with. And my husband, he brought his company here home to the farm in 2021 and so he is able to work from home part of the year he manages a ski shop during the ski season so that's starting up now for him but he's able to be on the farm with me during the summer months which are the busiest times and he sort of splits his day between his his company that he runs out of here and doing the farm work so you know I have the ability to have help also if you're looking at the farm that's around the corner from you and it always looks picturesque and everything looks perfect there's a lot of work that went into that. And believe me, the house might not be clean too. So it's okay. You know, the mowing, the mowing never ends. (laughs) (laughs) Just like that to-do list. So the kids growing up here, how did you incorporate them? Were they into doing things around the farm or were they not? Yeah. So when they were little, they definitely were like all about their chickens and, you know, love to do all of those things. My daughter rode horses with me, her and I, I still have her horse now that she has, you know, since gone off to college and no longer rides. I sort of took him over because he's just a sweet little, little guy. So, you know, her and I rode horses together. I didn't always have my horses at home. We boarded them until 2016. And that was when our barn was ready enough. We had finally had enough resources to build stalls inside the barn because we had built the barn as a shell and it really wasn't ready for horses yet. So again, that was another progression in us being able to have the animals at home full time and, you know, clearing fields. I had to clear fields. We had no fields. 
So we had to clear, you know, go in and, and harvest all the wood and stump everything and, you know, harrow and oh goodness. I mean, we were talking some work in New Hampshire. It's pretty rocky. Yes. So, and then we, we cleared a riding ring in 2017. So like I'm able to ride out there. We do not have fancy footing, but it is really nice anyway. I love it. So everything is just a progression, but the kids, yeah, they were really involved when they were younger. You know, we, at one point, I think they were probably like 12 and 10, maybe, maybe younger, maybe 10 and eight. We did a round of meat birds once and, you know, we, we did all the slaughtering ourselves and they got to experience that because I felt like it was really important for my kids to understand where their food comes from. I felt like a lot of kids are so detached from what actually goes into the roast chicken sitting on their table. So, you know, our kids were very much involved with that. Um, by the time they got to high school, because we live in a really small area, we have a regional school. And so they went to a smaller private school for high school and their days were really long there. Mm -hmm. And so I think at that point they began to become more detached from the farm life. Now the kids are all, you know, basically living in cities. Our, our youngest daughter, she's in London for a semester right now. And she spent the summer in Boston doing an internship um, this past summer. So she was not home, but she, she does um, go to college up at St. Lawrence, which is in Canton, New York. And that's pretty much the, the heart of Amish country. So she does. And I still find even in London, like she seeks out a farmer's market for her groceries. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I had, I had a Zoom call with her the other day and she was telling me about the farmer's market that's in her neighborhood and how much she loves that. So I think there is an appreciation. I see them sourcing, like looking for organic food if they're shopping at the store, but they have become somewhat disconnected. I, I guess we're going to see as they navigate adulthood, like will they end up coming back to live on a farm or will they be city kids? You know, I grew up in a really small town, but then decided that, oh, I was done with small town life and I wanted to go to the city for college. And within a couple of years, I knew that that was not the life for me, that I always wanted something just a little closer to the earth. So I was able to eventually, you know, get here and I'm grateful for it. Thank you so much for your time today. Is there anything that you wanted to share that I have not asked you about? No, don't be afraid if you have a piece of land that is unconventional and I think that's something that I've had to overcome here because the land is just not flat. It's not a typical farmland. And, you know, although th this did actually used to be a sheep farm, the original farmhouse at the end of the road at the dead end, it was a sheep farm. And so our property is actually marked by the barbed wire that's still growing through all the trees. But what I would say is, you know, just just work with what you have and don't be afraid to like not have it look like Instagram or Pinterest because that's not what real farming looks like. Real farming is chaotic and we use broken bits and pieces and baling twine fixes everything. So that would be my advice. Baling twine fixes almost everything. So don't throw it all away. Well said. There you go. And if, if you want to find out more about us and our crazy life here in Springfield, New Hampshire yeah. on Divided Sky Farm, our website is dividedskyfarm.com. We are on Instagram as Divided Sky Farm and also Divided Sky Farm Botanicals, which awesome. is our herbal component. I am not the best at keeping up with social media or our website, but there is some general really good information on there about who we are and what we do here. And you can always reach out to us by email. It's on our website, dividedskyfarm at gmail.com. Um, we don't text, sorry, uh, but we will respond to your email, hopefully within a 48 hour period, providing that we're not out in the gardens or shoveling lots of snow. 
So. I love that. And I will totally <laughs> drop all of the, your socials in the show notes too for folks. To yeah. Have. I meant to ask you, so where did the name Divided Sky Farm come from? So my husband and I are really big fans of the band from Vermont, Fish. Ah. So <laughs> you, okay. We have been seeing Fish for a very, very, very long time. And there is a, a song called Divided Sky. And if you look behind me is our barn. And a lot of times in the morning and in the evening, it looks like the sky is dividing right over our barn the way the sun hits it. And so I guess, gosh, maybe five or six years ago, we just decided, or no, I guess that's eight years ago. About eight years ago, we were like, we need to name our farm. Like we're kind of official now. Like we have all these animals and we have all these things and we're, we're doing stuff. We should probably have a name for this farm instead of just like our address. And so we were sitting out here on the deck and you know, having a drink and talking. And we were like, oh, we should call it Divided Sky because it was like sunsetting that day. And we'll often get these beautiful rainbows right behind the farm. And if you look at our social media, there's some of those pictures. So yeah, so it's an ode to to the band. We do still go on tour and, and see try to see them a couple of times a summer. Whenever we can get off the farm and have coverage, we, we will go. And so you'll see lots of on our website. There's some great pictures of us at, at fish shows. We're also big friends of the Grateful Dead. So we'll be up in Vermont next week seeing Bob Weir, which is going to be Bob Weir and the Wolf Brothers will be at Shelburne Farms. So we're going to come up for an evening and throw our picnic blanket out and have some wood-fired pizza and watch Bob Weir. So we love we love music. So that's a big component. We have a, we have Sonos speakers um, all over the farm. And so very often, um, almost every day, we will have Jump Radio playing, which is a radio station out of Maine that plays a lot of fish. So we have that even out in the riding ring. I'll bring the mobile speaker out there and ride a horse and have, have music going. That. Yeah. So oh my it's gosh, kind of I a, love that. Yeah. So that yeah. that's our name. So yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, and I thank you. Thank you for not only explaining that, but also <laughs> that just gives a window into how how you're making this farm and this life your own and the things that you enjoy and bringing music out into you know, the fields and the gardens and, and, and the riding ring and just, yeah, that's just lovely. Yeah. We're, we're convinced that having music on most of the time, you know, desensitizes your animals, number one, but number two, it's just that plants are happy. We're happy. You'll often find us dancing out here and we have a rescue puppy that we rescued six months ago. She's a great Pyrenee mixed with golden retriever. And um, she's training under our resident 12-year-old German Shepherd farm dog who is, who's, you know, getting up in his age. She's just turning a year on the 21st um, of this month. And she has discovered like turkeys and fox and all the things. And she likes to bark. But if there's music on, she barks a lot less. So <laughs> please do not buy a farm and then go get like three livestock guard dog puppies at once because you are going to like run yourself into the ground. Okay. <laughs> Thank you again. This is just lovely. Yeah, this was great. It's so great to meet you. And I'm so happy you're doing this podcast. What a fantastic way to meet farmers. And so a lot of us are just on our farm doing work and we don't have the opportunity to sort of talk about what we do unless we're at the farmer's market. So this is awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. So lovely to meet you. Thank you. Have a great day, Jen. What a delightful conversation with Erin. I initially reached out to her because I was looking for first-generation folks to share their stories, and um, Erin wasn't a strict example of who we usually have on, which is usually a livestock-first-based farmer, but, you know, she was a plant 
based person first with livestock. And just some of the things that I loved about our conversation were just the overlap of herbalism and plant medicines and general farmer challenges and how universal it is um, regardless of the of the systems, of the of the primary farming system. So we all have seasonality built into what we do if we are folks working outside and so much of farming is based on what's happening outside. And our to-do lists are long, no matter what kind of farming or ranching we're engaged in. I just, I really appreciated her similar experiences, even though in some ways what we what we do is very different. Um, but there's so much similarity. Love that. So some of the topics that were raised today, I just wanted to highlight a little bit more. The idea of starting with just a, starting with a little and growing it over time. You know, as a first or returning generation person, like really anyone starting this from scratch, it feels like we have to do everything now and it has to be all at once. And um, and I love that Aaron and Charles built a few things every year over time. And now looking back, they say, look at all that we built and we've done. Um, I've been reading this book uh, called The One Thing by Gary Keller, who is a Keller Williams real estate fellow. And and it talks about how distracting and non-productive trying to do too many things at once can be, um, which I feel like is basically a descriptor of my entire life. Um, I've read some ag books that say, you know, first generation folks are building things for the next generations to manage or to they're building it for the next generations behind them. And putting things in that perspective, we're running a marathon we're not running a race. You know, we can't do everything at once. Um, so thanks, Aaron. That was a really good reminder to just keep picking a couple of things every year and and work on those and not beat ourselves up too much because we don't get that to-do list done um, every, every day or week or year. Um, I also, I particularly appreciated the herbalist meets pasture management perspective. Like the third rule that Aaron was talking about is this, it's a recipe for terrific pasture management. <laughs> I, I really appreciated hearing Aaron talk about this, the, the concept that taking one third allows rest and renewal. Um, and, and that speaks to pasture and herbs, but I think it also speaks to our lives and days too. Like the the concept of an eight hour workday to allow for our own rest and renewal. And we don't always get that in farming. We know we don't always get that in farming, but what kind of rest and renewal would we be able to have for ourselves and the things that that we're able to do around us um, if we are only taking a third for ourselves? And so also, uh, when she was talking about weeds, like in our world, those are weeds or forbs. Those are the, the non-grass, non-legume plants. They're the third category that if you like them, they're forbs. If you don't like them, they're often weeds. Um, these are plants that have so much to teach us. And I love... I love that she talked about just walking around your land. It's actually one of the, my favorite things to do, um, walking around and observing the new species that are, that are arriving and seeing what that's done for the wildlife population and for the soil health and for the pollinator population. Um, pasture systems have such a heavy emphasis on biodiversity. Um, 
it's not that there isn't an emphasis on production, but there is a heavy emphasis on um, biodiversity and all of our systems functioning well together. And I just really appreciated um, Aaron's ecosystem focus as well. Um, and then, you know, just sort of the whole idea of our, our climate shifting, the weather patterns changing, growing seasons changing, you know, um, uh, we, we recorded this uh, earlier in the fall, and after we chatted, the official growing zones map was just published, and the zones are definitely shifting warmer. Um, things that, that were not available a, a little while ago in Vermont, New Hampshire, the whole Northeast, are, are now species and varieties that we, we can um, grow up here. So the whole idea of thinking about two-year timelines on what we can raise and produce you know it's not really a thing that i've been thinking about before but this is this is the second farmer that i've had a conversation with about planning things on a two-year cycle instead of trying to do everything in a one-year cycle and i know like in, in meat, certainly, like th there's food safety questions around trying to keep things longer. But but just as a concept, like how would we do things differently if we thought about a different growing or raising cycle? Would we do things the same? Would we do them differently? And and sometimes we just do the same thing over and over because it's sort of our pattern. But I think it's really important to shake things up and ask the questions just to keep us keep us creative and not stuck doing the same thing over and over simply because that's what we've always done. Because as things shift and grow, like, you know, the world around us is doing, um, if we're not shifting and growing, then we're not well adapted for the world. So anyway, so um, what parts of this conversation resonated with you? Um, Reach out with your comments or questions at uh, choosingtofarm.com. You can check the show notes for links to Aaron's contact information, um, as well as a link to some of the topics we talked about, including the two um, weed slash herbal books that, we, that Aaron mentioned. And I have a link to the One Thing book if that resonates with you, too. Um, as always, if you'd like to support the show, please share it with a friend, uh, consider supporting our Patreon, or leave a public review. They really help those public reviews, they really help, and they're free, so appreciate that. And also, save that date for the Gathering of Good Grazers coming to Western Massachusetts um, at the end of January. If you join the mailing list of the Northeast Pasture Consortium, which is also in the show notes, um, you'll get notified when registration opens, there's also going to be a range of scholarship op options for farmers, for service providers, and also for students to attend. We want to get a broad uh, representation of support and education and connection um, across all of the folks working in um, pasture-related or even if it's not what you do yet and you want to learn more about pasture, we want more people to understand about the issues of pasture-based farmers. Uh, so anyway, so it's a hybrid conference, so you can t attend in person, which is our, our our preference, of course, so we can reconnect. Um, but we also, it's a hybrid, so we'll be online as well if travel is just too hard for you. Um, we're really excited and that we hope that you'll join us in January for that. So it is such an honor to be able to share your stories out into the world. Um, farmer to farmer is how we learn and how we build a community. And that's what I hope we're doing together, one episode at a time. Thanks, everyone. I'll see you next time. Here's my husband, Chris Sargent, to play us out. <laughs>